So that day was um, probably the most grounding day I've ever had. It was just this spectacular blue sky and this stunning, stunning deep red soil. And there we were literally out of the back of a truck with mum lying on the back of the tray back and an old diesel generator. So I couldn't have been sort of further away from what I'd been used to. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. Some people venture into the wilderness to find their spiritual selves or just to chill out. But our guest today went to the Australian outback and spotted the opportunity to save lives. This is the Architects of Business, Joe's weekly series of interviews with leading entrepreneurs in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm Ty Genrice and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Johnny Walker, whose journey in entrepreneurship started on the back of a truck in Western Australia. He travelled with a mobile scanner, mostly screening pregnant Aboriginal women for signs of a common complication. And then here I was suddenly out there on my own, completely and utterly isolated, and seeing this level of care being delivered to the Aboriginal mums, which um, we wouldn't accept in metropolitan cities anywhere in the world. And so I just felt there was this, uh, this huge divergence between the haves and the have-nots, and um, we had to do something about that. But while there, Johnny saw the opportunity to solve a problem for healthcare in remote areas. I just started drawing the towns and, um, and working out where I could be on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday to uh, deliver a mobile ultrasound service um, in the little district hospitals or the little um, medical clinics in these little towns. That was the beginning of an entrepreneurial path that ultimately brought him to Ireland. The English, I love them, but they tend to, ooh, they tend to pour, <laughs> pour water on you if, you, if you're sort of uh, uh, lighting fires, whereas the Irish, they just seem to embrace it. And uh, plus this, um, this mighty thing you have over here, Ty, called the crack. From humble beginnings, the business grew into a global force, but not without personal sacrifice. The trade-off for doing what we do is, um, is our family. You know, someone's got to miss out on you. And uh, in terms of time, in terms of focus... And, and that's a you know it's a real bloody shame. Today we'll hear Johnny's thoughts on getting the right advice in business and saving time for the people you love. Johnny, thank you so much for uh, for being with us. Um, you know it strikes me lots of people maybe in their younger years head off into the wilderness or in your case the outback to experience a, a simpler way of life. But when you went, you saw a potential for for something very very different. Yeah. Well. Well, Tiger, it wasn't sort of out of choice that I went out into the outback, mate. I got stuck um, there waiting for a visa to get back into uh, the States to continue on my training, but ended up um, uh, high up in the, uh, in the bush in um, Western Australia uh, doing a mobile ultrasound service on pregnant Aboriginal women. And it was that particular day, and this was way back now, in um, the 11th of the 11th of 1995, that uh, I was just out there on this particular day doing mobile ultrasounds out of the back of a truck on pregnant Aboriginal mums, um, a large majority of whom get um, diabetes. And the sugar goes across the placenta and the little baby sucks up the sugar. And so the little baby um, don't become diabetic themselves, but they become quite large. And we call that macrosomic uh, babies. And then when mum goes to deliver them, mum, uh, the baby gets stuck. And then we end up losing both mum and uh, bub during that stage of delivery. And so it's still one of the um, biggest causes of death of Aboriginal women of childbearing age. And it just happened to be out in the middle of, of nowhere uh, by Fitzroy Crossing in Western Australia. And it was spectacular. A very noble pursuit, obviously. Um, 
But how much of a culture shock was it for, for you in contrast with your life before? Yeah, well, I've been, from a clinical point of view, I've been blessed to be training in these centres of excellence um, around the world, not only in Sydney and Perth, um, but also over in uh, the Royal Postgraduate Medical School at the Hammersmith Hospital in London and up to Cambridge, across to Stanford. And so I really, really had been blessed with um, great teams, phenomenal technology, and never on my own. And um, and this this particular uh, day, I was out there um, just with myself and Albie, the Aboriginal driver, who was responsible. <laughs> for most of these pregnancies anyway and uh, so that day was um, probably the most grounding day I've ever had it was just this spectacular blue sky and this stunning stunning deep red soil and there we were literally out of the back of a truck with mum lying on the back of the tray back and an old diesel generator so I couldn't have been sort of further away from what I'd been used to. What a contrast from all the uh, the, the, the great medical centres you've been in before. Yeah but uh, it was also that was the moment that I realised you know I had a I, I had a, a catastrophic pregnancy um, during one of those um, 48 mums that I was scanning that day in 48 degrees, and uh, it was then that I just felt incredibly isolated. And I'd I'd grown up in this, um, you know, really protected environment, really um, at these centres of excellence around the world. And then here I was, suddenly out there on my own, completely and utterly isolated, and seeing this level of care being delivered to the Aboriginal mums, which um, we wouldn't accept in metropolitan cities. Um, anywhere in the world and so I just felt there was this uh, this huge divergence between the haves and the have-nots and um, we had to do something about that. Which was the, the basis for your beginnings in, in, in the business of medicine as opposed to the practice of medicine. Tell us about what's... Yeah, I'd stop you there. I, I'd say, okay. no, it was never a business. It was never a business. It was always a clinical practice. It was always, always um, with the patient at the centre of everything and what we were just trying to do was to... Um, focus on delivering clinical best practice on every patient we had the uh, the, the um, privilege of touching and then operationally trying to deliver a better service for them which was you know faster more effective more efficient so talk to me about how that uh, you know, new approach that you devised in, in the outback uh, came into your mind well, it, um, that, that day I, I felt incredibly isolated. All we had was an old sat phone uh, to ring the Royal Flying Doctor service. But when I was training at the Hammersmith, I arrived the day that the um, NHS had just put in $28 million into the radiology department there to make it a truly filmless and paperless department. So do away with the old viewing boxes and the old um, uh, dark rooms, etc., and um, do away with paper completely. And uh, whilst it was a partial success at the time when I was at the Hammersmith, it was up and down a dozen times a day. But when it was up, I thought, my goodness, if this works, this will become more accessible, just like the colour television. Remember when it first came out, you probably don't. But um, it was so expensive and then it became cheaper and cheaper. And, and I just thought, gosh, this technology might become cheaper to the point where it would have fantastic application in parts of the world where I grew up. So these were, these was the beginning of the kind of the digital photography re- revolution anyway. Um, so you saw that playing out in the outback in terms of helping to achieve what? I thought that we could um, link these small fragmented communities which were distributed over this massive um, paddock called Western Australia, um, two and a half million square kilometres, and some 400,000 people, off, um, the vast majority of them Indigenous, and they were in these tiny, tiny fragmented communities, and they just didn't have access to any basic level of care that we would expect um, to be able to provide. And so I just thought, look, maybe, maybe we could tap into that technology that I saw at the Hammersmith 
Um, now, we didn't have the £28 million, but I just wondered if we could just do it um, um, really bootstrapping, I suppose. I didn't know that word at the time, but um, we bootstrapped it. So I just put ads into all of the Australian papers in the capital cities, um, up into Singapore and one over into Palo Alto and Stanford uh, for expressions of interest into data transfer. And um, no one came back to me except these three lads who'd um, done some work in um, banking finance uh, data transfer. And I just showed him a video of myself um, reporting the old way with a packet of 50 films and the old microphone and magnifying glass in front of the viewing box. And I said, guys, everything you see me do digitally, uh, sorry, everything you see me do physically, I really would love if you could do it digitally and connect to centres of excellence around the world. And that's what I did. I just rang my buddies um, in all the places where I'd worked before and said, listen, guys, I've got this very unusual looking cancer that's eroding the lateral wall of nose. It's going up into the floor of the orbit. It's chaos. And um, really that chaos should be read by someone who reads chaos all day long and that was where I was able to link through to the centres of excellence and um, all my old bosses and um, my peers and people who'd written all the articles in all the journals they kind of um, they kind of liked this they they thought this was a bit of fun a great bit of crack in that they were able to report cases on a 56 year old lady from um, um, Kununurra in Western Australia mm. Um was there, was there any resistance to, to your proposed way of, 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 of changing the status quo? Initially there wasn't, I mean, because the setup in Australia is that um, there's public and private diagnostic services and those in um, private were sort of large partnerships rapidly growing. Um, and uh, they um, they were quite happy for me to be out doing what I was doing. They were, they were, they were all good friends of mine and they were, they were wishing me all the best. And then um, there was this aggregation of private practices in Australia into publicly listed companies, and then it shifted from a clinical focus very much to a commercial focus, and then suddenly... uh I think they looked at me, uh, even out in the outback, um, they saw me and certainly the technology and the speed with which we were able to build that technology to deliver an incredibly scalable service. Then I started appearing on their radar and uh, I became a threat. And at that point, um, there was there was lobbying going on in Canberra and uh, there was an act uh, enabled in the Medicare Act to um, prohibit uh, any transmission of uh, digital Im- image off the island of Australia. And, of course, what I was doing was um, transmitting images now around the clock around the world to a panel of radiologists who were awake and alert using high-resolution monitors and voice-activated dictation and template-driven reports to be able to deliver the report back in um, in a matter of minutes rather than hours or days or months. And so that in itself, I think they saw that as being incredibly disruptive. How did you overcome that? I didn't. Um, they, they basically... Um, uh, uh, they had the power, you know. They they're you know, incredibly powerful um, lobbyists. Uh, there was a lot of vested interest in ensuring that um, the model that they had built, which was the old traditional darkroom model, um, uh, was sustained and maintained. And um, at that point, uh, they they opposed anything I did. And so we were able to um, just bit by bit uh, grow it locally Um, and then in terms of the international transfer the idea of um, doctors getting up at three o'clock in the morning in Australia and when you're wrecked and and reporting brain scans etc you're just not on your game so if you could spin those images to say the United Kingdom or Ireland where we were awake and alert with the time zones um, we would be able to deliver a far more accurate report and um, what they did they stopped that and so we went and did deals with the state or provincial hospitals who weren't under the Medicare Act and that enabled us to provide that service. When you look back and, and you consider that you know the, the principles that doctors are all supposed to, to sign up to, the Hippocratic Oath, yeah. 
uh, and you look back in their their conduct how do you think they should feel about themselves? Ah, oh, look, I don't think it's anything to do with the Hippocratic Oath. I think this was business. Um, we'd moved on at that stage from, you know, clinical delivery, um, which I think they still have massive admiration for. And so many of those people now work for the practice which we built, which we call Global Diagnostics. And um, I think Global's really made an impact, uh, not only down in Australia, but now around the world. And so they have, um, I think, huge clinical respect for what we've been able to do and operationally as well. And um, now things have worked its way out. And so there is... Uh, remuneration within the Medicare Act, etc. So that it, it's worked its way out. You uh, you mentioned the name there, Global Diagnostics. It's it's the company that you uh, you spent many years building. In those early years, how did you start to put put a shape on the you know the vehicle that was going to deliver uh, these ideas and this uh, this this technological revolution? Yeah, I suppose so. It it wasn't as um, uh, as grand as that. It was quite literally on a um, in a little green folder and with some loose leaf papers, which I'd gone and bought in a little news news agent and then I just started drawing the towns and um, and working out where I could be on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, driving between Harvey Collie, Donnybrook, Bridgetown, Manjimup, Margaret River, etc., um, to uh, deliver a mobile ultrasound service um, in the little district hospitals or the little um, medical clinics in these little towns and so that's what I mapped out and I've worked out how many um, what was the population um, how many GPs were flying in flying out with the Royal Flying Doctor etc where could I deliver a service that was um, affordable and sustainable and that's how we grew it Mm. How, How dirty did your hands have to get how hard did you have to work at this early stage uh, clinically I was on the tools all day every day so and have remained that way so uh, you know to this day this very day now actually Ty I've got to head straight back to the hospital <laughs> but um, I've never given up um, uh, my clinical vocation which is really my driver it's when I'm in the trenches and that's what um, you know still drives my passion it's where I see all the pain points um, so from a hands-on point of view uh, I did every case um, so I would scan every case I do every biopsy do every report um, but um, bit by bit by bit I um, got a a little team around me who were just um, they were crazy themselves and they were able to um, deliver the operational side. Yeah but you were also in addition to that you know you were, you were concerned I guess about the operational side and you had to make sure there was there was money there and uh, for, for the equipment you needed and make sure that you you stayed afloat. Right so we had no money that was um, when I told the lads when I sent them the video of me doing the, the reporting the old way I said oh by the way I can't pay you and uh, these three lads <laughs> I said that's okay let's do it and so we did and um, uh, Jim Lee the wonderful old general manager of the Bustle District Hospital down the southwest corner of Western Australia he said um, Johnny I what are, you, what are you actually proposing? And I said, Jim, what if I come and I bring the, a little mobile ultrasound and you give me a room and the, somewhere to wash my hands and some needles and stuff if I need to do the biopsies and we'll go halves in all the money you save for the patient-assisted transfer scheme to get patients up to Perth for diagnostic studies and you pay me at, um, uh, at 30 days. And um, he agreed to do that. And then the next issue was then getting an ultrasound machine. Now, Toshiba just brought in this tiny little baby um, mobile ultrasound machine and they were trying to get one into the Australian market and someone told them that, look, there's this crazy little guy over in West Australia who's looking for one. And um, that was it. So we we, uh, got this beautiful little uh, ultrasound machine which fitted into the back of the uh, the truck and Tosh said, "Um, look, pay uh, pay us in 30 days. And I asked for 90 days. We settled on 60 days. Jim paid me at 30 days. So we had 30 days cash flow positivity. (laughs) And we never looked back. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, this kit is, is, is bloody expensive, isn't it? Yeah, it was 34000 actually at the time, which was a you know bucket load of money for me, Tig. Yeah, I mean, that was just a imagine. bucket load. And on that first day when we did our uh, first four scans up in the Collie Hospital, I left the little lappy because I had to buy a lappy as well to get the digital images off the ultrasound. And I left the lappy on the roof as I was taking the pictures. And as I was coming down the hill from Collie down into Bunbury, I, I felt this thump. <laughs> and I thought, what's that? It must be like a low-flying duck. But it didn't quite feel like a, it didn't feel like a, a roo. You know how a kangaroo lifts the car? I wouldn't just, know. Oh, sorry. Most people say, wouldn't. <laughs> say that a root tends to give you a good old thump. This was more like a thud. And, um, and I thought, oh, I must be a low-flying duck. But it wasn't. It was my bloody lappy, which was sitting on the roof. And, of course, they were my first four patients that I'd ever done. And all of the data was on that um, on that lappy. Uh, so at that, that point, I think God was telling me, listen, Johnny, let this go. Leave it. Go back to Stanford. Let this go. <laughs> but um, at that point, I thought, well, we're beyond the point of no return now because I've... I now owe eight thousand on that um, on that laptop, <laughs> so that's why that's why we went forward. So take me through the the stages of of, of growth that you went through the kind of the big milestones when you know uh, global diagnostics made really big strides. So we started from the back of that um, old truck in uh, November of nineteen ninety five on a three k telephone line, and then a bit by bit by built. We built it um, throughout WA, Western Australia, and along came, as I said, the ISDN, along came the web, and then suddenly, as I said before, the brakes were off, and we were able to link through to uh, back to Cambridge and um, uh, across into Oxford and up to Norwich and various other centres in Leeds and then across into the States. And at that point, a, a few of the crew were coming out and doing locums with me. They were going surfing and uh, fishing as well. But um, they said, Johnny, you should really bring this to the NHS. And so um, we did. We hopped on a plane and... I asked my team at that stage, you know, could we um, could we go and have a pop at the NHS? Because at that stage, the large publicly listed companies were beginning to circle me and they were opening nine to five clinics across the road from the 24-7 hospitals that we were operating in. But how did it evolve from being, you know, a service connecting, you know, pr- primarily women mm. in small remote mm. communities to, to, to expert doctors elsewhere? To, to, to Britain, for example, yeah. where, you know, everyone, most people, there's nobody too far from a hospital, certainly not in the mm. way that there is in, in Western Australia. Mm. Well, the driver for me to, to look at the NHS was um, we were getting, um, we were about to get pushed into the sea in Western Australia with the big boys coming down and just quite literally opening up. And uh, immediately you lose 30% of your volume and we're a volume driven business, uh, high capex for the MRIs, the CAT scans, etc. But the most important asset is your team. And we're running a 24-7, seven-day-a-week, 365 service in the sick people business. And you start losing staff to a nine-to-five clinic without any weekend work, being able to sleep every night. It's quite attractive for them. And so we lost, um, as you would, 30% of your um, of your referrals because they could do it the same day as you. And um, we lost 13 of our staff. And that was enough for them to set up opposite us. And, so, uh, and, and they had the muscle. And so we were going to go either pushed into the desert if we went east or pushed into the sea if we went west or off the tip of australia if we went south and so at that stage i thought look this is now a survival tactic can i use this technology to really leverage up this virtual network of radiologists that we'd built around the world mainly out of goodwill towards you know myself to help me out but could we actually put a wrap a um um, a blanket over this and call this um call this something real and so that's when we came up with the name of global diagnostics and that's when we um truly then began to develop a global um vision for scaling this um at pace so what started as an ultrasound machine on the back of a truck evolved 
evolved into a network of of of, of, of clinics. Or? Yeah, virtual network of um, a mix of mobile um, services, fixed clinics, and also um, large hospital contracts um, in Australia, the UK, uh, Ireland, and we were everywhere we went, we were invited in. And because um, they were they were interested in what we'd done in Australia, uh, the NHS. Yeah, you say that no one's very far from a hospital, and that's very true. But in fact, the waiting lists back in two thousand two, two thousand three, when we did make the move into um, the United Kingdom, the waiting lists for an MRI of the lumbar spine or the hip or the knee was somewhere out towards two to three years, because you don't die of a uh, osteoarthritis of the knee. Um, so the MRIs at that stage were quite limited, and they were focused very much on cancer, on cardiac, and on um, on um, stroke, as they should be and so people were had enormous long waiting lists to get their MRI of the knee to be able to then go on and get operated on to get their replacement and so we saw that as our beachhead and we went in and we started building instead of a mobile ultrasound service we built a mobile MRI service um, but again had no money and so I just googled um, sickness illness injury unwellness and came up with these um, fitness centres um, LA Fitness um, Virgin Esporta uh, and I uh, emailed all of the CEOs of each of these um, uh, fitness centres centres, um, David Lloyd, etc., mm-hmm. and asked if I could um, have a coffee with them. And uh, Dave Standing, who was the CEO of Asporta, said, yeah, come and we'll meet the next day. And it was a 30-minute meeting, and it went four hours. And then we started a uh, mobile service from one of the Asporta um, centres in Oxford um, two weeks later. And then from then, I just launched out of all of these beautiful, beautiful fitness centres, which were usually off the freeways. They had wonderful infrastructure. They had three-phase power. They had these aspirational centres beautifully built, and they had this fantastic young aspirational staff. Mm. And so I and clientele. And the clientele. So we just literally bought the, the trucks in, plugged them on, and um, the local doctors started sending the um, patients, and they loved the fact that they could jump this two-year waiting list and have a coffee and a and a, um, a flapjack in these beautiful centres. And, in fact, we very rapidly became the biggest franchisee for a sporter, health and fitness. Within six months, we were the biggest franchise and for What them. kind of a price point were you doing there to kind of attract people away from the NHS, which although you've, it, it's used to wait two years, it's also mm. free? Yeah. So it's free at point of care in the NHS, as it was then. Um, we just went in at exactly the same price point that Bupa, which were really the, um, the kingmaker in the market over there. So we went in at exactly the same price, and we focused on the self-funding market. And so pay Patients were prepared to spend at the time, it was £225 to get an MRI, um, if it meant them jumping a, a two, two and a half year waiting list. Mm-hmm. So how did you end up here? Um, long story, but Mary Harney, uh, the health wow. minister, had seen what we were doing and um, invited me over to speak at a conference. And um, quite literally, I spoke in the morning session and um, there were a few innovative um, players uh, speaking that day, including one of my great heroes, a guy called um, Mick Carney, who'd uh, set up Snap Printing down in um, Western Australia. And he coached the Cottesloe rugby team. He's gone on and been the manager of your, um, of your rugby team. He's a great fella. And uh, he did Snap and he just opened up a thing called Home Instead with Eddie and uh, they spoke ahead of me and um, then I just uh, spoke and I did a kind of a, as I was on the stage, um, a a case came through. I was live because I'm on call all the time and uh, it came through and um, it was a 35-year-old lady query ectopic pregnancy out of Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. There's nothing more powerful, I suppose, than seeing it. Um, So I was able to look at the images, uh, report them, send them straight back, all anonymised, so um, not yet GDPR compliant, but at the time it was still confidential. 
and it was then straight after that that um, uh, the crew from VHI, uh, they just opened the Swift Care Clinics, um, approached me to see whether or not we could provide a diagnostic service to them uh, and also um, uh, the Hermitage um, Hospital and the HSE and various other members of the ecosystem then just approached me to see um, what would need to be done to make this happen to bring you to Ireland. And so I came by invitation. And then it got to the point where I was here two nights a week, three nights a week, and it just made sense for us to um, to come a across. War of attrition. It was, it was. Plus, I, I suppose, um, you know, without offending any of my English friends or colleagues, um, the English, I love them, but they tend to ooh, they tend to pour <laughs> pour water on you if, you, if you're sort of uh, uh, lighting fires. Whereas the Irish, they just seem to embrace it. And uh, plus, this um, this mighty thing you have over here, Ty, called the crack. Oh, the and crack! The crack is mighty. It is it mighty. Is, it is, really is. If we could bottle that and then put that into an intravenous infusion, I think, uh, geez, we'd kill cancer. We really would. <laughs> no doubt about it. Uh, yeah, we're some people for the crack here. I've, I wonder, I've got to ask you, do you get much stick about your name here? I do, I do. So, um, do you wish you were called John Jameson instead? Johnny Jameson. There's a, there's a turn up. Um, I, I've got to... I have 30 minutes to do a case and I don't want my patients hearing this and I don't ever want them to think they're on a conveyor belt of care but I know I've got 30 minutes in that operating room and the first um, two minutes to two and a half minutes is just meeting, greeting, sitting down with them, put my arm around them and tell them, look, what we're going to do and I draw and so I draw exactly what I'm going to do but um, uh, the first minute really is around my name <laughs> and then the second minute is, Johnny, yeah, 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 I'm about to put a needle into their spine or into their liver and that's not, that's not important to them. What? Where's that name from and why are you here? Why in Ireland? You come from Australia. And here I am about to put a, a needle into their liver and a, their priority is wondering why on earth I've made this decision. Well, anything that distracts them, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Uh, Johnny, it's fascinating stuff so far. Do stay with us because still to come, the architects of business, lots more to come, including more of Johnny's thoughts on living a business life well and the next project that he's got to work on. You're listening to the Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Visit eoy.ie to find out more about the programme and this year's finalists. Get in touch. Mail us on thearchitectsofbusiness at joe.ie. So, Johnny, in, in 2012, things moved in a different direction for you. What happened then? So, um, at that point, Tig, I suppose I hit the the wall, you know, which I, which I call the, the founder's dilemma. We had grown this wonderful little practice, and it was always a practice. It was never a business. Clearly, we had to run it ultimately as a business um, so that we could be profitable to reinvest back in our people and our, our technology. But it got to a point where we were now um, embedded truly within Australia. Um, we were now um, embedded and growing rapidly in the United Kingdom. And now we had a fantastic opportunity in Ireland. And uh, we got that bedded down as well. Um, we had a fair head count um, at that point, And we were doing a you know, significant number of cases, many thousand cases now every day around the clock around the world. At that point, mate, um, it becomes a scale issue, and the excitement, the um, the real thrust of getting something out of the trenches from concept to um, to market, which is where I get my juices flowing. That's the entrepreneurial side of it. Suddenly, there was um, not so much entrepreneurial um, innovation anymore. It was now incremental scale, and it was just following a template. And to be honest, mate, that's not what I am. And so um, I was uh, blessed to have done the um, Stanford Leadership for Growth program, uh, which was part sponsored by um, Enterprise Ireland. And it was then that I realized, look, um, I need now to get myself uh, a really 
good scale team and we were blessed to have a terrific operator um, who'd stepped in and was at that stage um, helping with global around the world and um, we asked Dave to step up and he became uh, the CEO of Global Diagnostics and that allowed me the opportunity to exit and uh, because I just still felt I had one big disruption within me and it was probably better to disrupt from without uh, from outside of the mothership than to try and do it from within the mothership. So you you already had your plan for your next venture mm. at the back of your mind then. Was it was it a plan or just a, a desire to do something else? Oh no, no, it was very much a plan to um to go full circle um, in terms of treating patients, not so much out in the dirt, in the bush, out of the back of the trucks, although, you know, we've made a great impact over there in doing that. But um, it was really to stop patients coming to hospital in the first place by enabling them to be well in the community and within the community, within the home. And within the home, it was my um, absolute uh, material observation that the chief curator of care in the family in the vast majority of cases in 92% of our audit is actually the female, often the mother but often the daughter and um, we call her the Jinga after the African warrior queen, Queen Jinga and um, so we've launched Jinga Life and it's all about engaging and enabling, empowering um, the female captain of care in every family around the globe. So what is it? Through simple technologies. Um, We started with what did the Jinga need? So we sat down with our little Jinga council, our tribe, and um, what were the big pain points that they were finding in the uh, ecosystem? And the big one was that they, they don't feel a part of it. Um, they might be and now uh, they're in this role where they have to look after their uh, elderly father-in-law, their um, elderly mum, etc. They know they have to be at Taller at 2.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. They're not sure who they're actually seeing, what they're going for, what do they need, um, how they're going to get them there, etc. So the first thing they wanted to um, know was have, a, have an orderly visibility of uh, appointments. Um, number one, they also wanted to be able to have um, the basic uh, medical history of their elderly mum or dad or their, their in-laws or even the children, etc. Um, and they wanted to know um, the immunisation history, allergies, um, previous operations, etc. And so we went about building just a very, very simple mobile GDPR-compliant family electronic health record which gave the Jinga access and visibility to all of the medical history of all of her loved ones from womb right through to term uh, from the moment of conception all the way through to that really important stage that end of life and uh, and death and dying dignified dying um, and using just simple technologies to enable that and bring the Jinga into the centre of the focus of the ecosystem rather than her being this um, this orbiting electron that's often seen as a nuisance she's, she's out there and I'm like oh my god here comes the Jinga down the corridor she's going to want to talk to me for the next five or ten minutes you know we need to embrace that because she's just fa- this fantastic resource and look i say in 92 percent of cases the female in eight percent of cases it's the male but um so we focus on the jinga and what we want to do is empower them in a way that they've never been before so what stage is jinga at on its journey right so we've got a, a fully compliant digital health platform um which was mobile enabled um we have our apps now in the um the app store and also on ios and and also on android And we've had, um, as of last night, uh, 12,556 downloads. So um, it's still going out as a freemium um, for the the base unit. And then on this, we will um, provide the key benefits. And then 
uh, as Rain Allen always says, add the features, but you know, stick to the benefits. And so we will add features of um, video consultation, electronic prescription, um, and various other uh, features that we'll be able to add onto the platform. So it's a platform that's really got legs to to, to grow in usefulness to the Jenga. That's it. that's it, and really building a brand around Jenga empowerment. Okay. Fascinating stuff. I noticed, though, because obviously, like any good researcher, I've checked your LinkedIn, uh, and I see you're 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 practicing as well um, at the Hermitage um, in tandem with all this. So you've, I mean, I know you said you've never given up the clinical, the hands-on stuff, and you're possibly checking when your next <laughs> when your next appointment is. I, I have. I've got a case booked at eleven thirty. Yeah. So I um no I I I've never ever given away the clinical. It's it what it's what um a it's my real. It's my real passion, Tiger. Don't get me wrong. I love, love, love the entrepreneurial side of it. But I'm I'm sort of blessed in it. There's a little bit of um, ambidexterity that lets me do both. Mm. And to be honest, they blend beautifully. Um, look, it's hard. You know, the hours are hard. But I um, I find that uh, my patients are incredibly grounding. You know, when I'm in there, when in operating theatre, we put Spotify on. They get to pick their, um, their playlist. And um, we get the job done. And we hit the target, hopefully, first time, every time, one time. And um, there's great uh, reward in that for me. So you let your patients pick their own Spotify music oh, for, yeah. for the surgery. Oh yeah, and that's again, I, you know, I've got to do all that in two and a half, three minutes. Do you ever do you ever veto it? I do, I do. If uh, <laughs> well, um, I have never vetoed. No, if they if they come up, we will find it on Spotify. Where our new cat scanner is, we're not getting great bandwidth down there at the moment. But um, we we haven't not been able to get anyone. Um, I was doing a prostate on a lovely old fella, gentleman Jim, uh, seventy six years of age, and of course the prostate biopsies are done via the rectum tie without offending anyone any of the listeners and it's not a oh, look it's not a pleasant procedure for any of us um and particularly you know the patient but we try and make them as comfortable as possible and very various little tricks that we can do to do that but um just as i'm about to put the probe in and i and i said jim what now what what would you like to listen to and you know often they'll come up with the classics and uh various other things you know soothing type music coffee music and he turns around and he goes uh Queen, we will rock you. <laughs> so there I was, and uh, and he kept asking to turn it up. So there I was putting the probe in as, uh, with um, Freddie Mercury, and you could hear the people outside in the in the corridor thinking, "What the hell's going on in there?" How strangely appropriate. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you mentioned there how how busy, how hard it was mm. uh, back in the day building what you've built. You know, some people find being a doctor is, is challenging enough by itself, and you were doing that. Plus your, your 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 enterprise as well. I mean, were there were there sacrifices you had to make down through the years to to to, to achieve everything you wanted to achieve? Yeah, uh, there always are, and um, you know, I'll be honest with you, uh, Ty. You know, the the in my experience, my personal experience, but also some of my observations is that the um, uh, the trade off for doing what we do is. Um, is our family, you know, someone's got to miss out on you. And uh, in terms of time, in terms of focus, and, and that's a, you know, it's a real bloody shame. I remember when I, I know when I speak and my last slide is, you know, and never stop loving your wife and kids for letting us do what we do because what we do is, particularly when we get together, we, you know, we, we create magic and we build magic and we make it happen. And uh, we're just wired that way. Um, the downside of that is that um, there can be an impact on the family. And so... Um, I think most of us would look back and think, gosh, could we have done it differently? Um, you know, particularly when it comes to, to family and that, that absolutely unconditional, totally focused time 
you know, with the um, with your wife, with your children. So when the little man, Angus, you know, my little 12-year-old says, oh, Dad, that was a Maserati that just went past, don't just keep walking and just say, oh, you go, that's great, mate. Stop and ask him, you know, mate, how did you know that was a Maserati? Tell me about the Maserati. What's the difference between the Maserati and the Ferrari? Tell me that. And how did, what's that logo? And, you know, get him talking and, and, and make him the most important um, person in your life for his special little moment. And I think as busy people, um, not even entrepreneurs, but across the deck, um, we just don't stop and, uh, and prioritise what's really important in the long run. And uh, I think family is just uh, it's unconditionally um, unconditional. Do you think is that something that's um, maybe left out of all the advice packs that are given to mm. aspiring entrepreneurs that actually mm. f- focus on on the other stuff that's, too? Yeah, yeah, and that's the irony of the whole thing. As I said, it's usually my last slide, and uh, you know, it's the one you drop, and it's a shame. It's a it's a bloody shame. Mm. I mean, has there been anything you've changed uh, in your life now? To you know, now that you have this awareness of what what um, maybe mistakes you, you might have made. Yeah, um, try and just focus when that Maserati goes past. Stop and uh, stop and listen and engage and and do that genuinely. Um, Don't just do it as lip service. You were mentioning before, you know, that the slides, the presentations you give on on, on your own experience, I'm guessing that's part of a kind of a a mentorship because that's your other interest as well is making sure that, um, you know, the the, the innovation pipeline in terms of what you've done in the past doesn't, uh, doesn't run dry. Yeah, I suppose the reason I mentor um, tigers, mate. I, you know, I often ask, get asked, Johnny, what would you, what would you do differently, or what would you have loved to have had? And you know, people often think um, broadband in the bush. It, it's not. If I just wished I'd had a mentor, I had some fantastic clinical mentors who you know taught me how to enter the lung from the posterior aspect or go through the liver capsule and that sort of stuff. But I didn't have a, um, I didn't have a business mentor, and I would love to have had a business mentor because I think, um, well, I know that we didn't just wouldn't have gone into as many potholes or off as many cliffs as we did during that journey when we were just trying to finesse it ourselves through um, uh, ignorant naivety innocent naivety but um we were ignorant and if i'd had a mentor that i could just ring and have 10 minutes a week with and just say look these are my big problems what do you reckon this is what i want to do this is what i think we should do this is the rationale what do you reckon and for them just to point me or maybe guide me away from the edge um or out of the pothole that would have been great and is that what things like uh, entrepreneur of the year is good for do you think well, the Entrepreneur of the Year is pretty special, um, Tigan, that um, EY do this fantastic uh, job of, I don't know how they do it, but every year they nail it down from, you know, the many, many applications down to 24 finalists across three categories. And um, it's uh, it's just this fantastic um, alumni we have now, which is um, punching up towards 500, um, where we all share this common thread of having been in the trenches and for the first time ever you can share um the you know the pain and uh and the heartache and uh and all of the challenges as well as the finesse and the successes because so many of us now have had success which is terrific um but it's uh it's it's just this fantastic um family that we've built built on trust built on respect and um, built on crack as well uh, in fact through the EY alumni we, one of our retreats was down to San Francisco and um, it was then that I was exposed to um, some of the edge thinking that was coming out of a place called Singularity University uh, down at the Ames um, research base at NASA down in Mountain View in California and um, you know they just 
opened our eyes to 3D printing and AI and AR and VR and all these other um, unbelievably um, uh, disruptive technologies which were just on the horizon at that stage. And I went down and uh, I challenged a, a chap by the name of Ismail um, Salim, who, Salim Ismail who, who said, well, Johnny, well, just come down and do the program. So I went down and did the program. You know, some of the people that I met within my class have just become, you know, really dear friends. And um, I decided then that with Jingle Life, I'm going to structure this completely differently. It's going to be from day one, I'm going to structure it as an exponential organization. And so we use all of the tools of an exponential organization um, in terms of... uh, you know how we how we take that forward in using interfaces and dashboards and algorithms and um, social, uh, but also um, staff on demand, so we can pulse up and pulse down. Um, real, real use of the community and our building our Jinga tribe, and um, and also just giving autonomy to our team uh, is very important. And leveraging other people's assets, so I don't have to ever lose to an ogre. I if I need a, a, a tube or whatever else, um, you know, I'll leverage that on a subscription basis. And um, so we've. Really really engineered it uh, from conception as an exponential organization. Okay. Johnny Walker, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for uh, talking to us today. God bless you, Ty. Cheers, mate. Thanks for joining us today on The Architects of Business. Thanks to our fantastic guest, Johnny Walker, our producer, Patrick Hoy, and all of the team here at Joe. Our programme is made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. You can go to eoy.ie to learn more about the finalists for this year. And don't miss out on past or future shows by subscribing for free to The Architects of Business on iTunes, on your favourite Android podcast app, or you can watch the show on YouTube. While you're there, check out some of Joe's other podcasts too, including our movie show, The Big Review Ski. I'm Ty Genreich. Thank you so much for being with us today, and I hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. 